Now, I don't think the diocese actually cared about my preference, but when I knew I was going to be sent to a new parish after I was the vicar for two years, I specifically requested a parish with a school because I love Catholic schools, I love ministry to Catholic schools, and I love the energy that Catholic schools bring to our parishes. So that has come to fruition. I love being here, and I love our school. And one of the things that happens with a school is when I walk from my office anywhere, often to my house for lunch, I have to weave through recess. And when I weave through recess, I'll sometimes ask the children, what are you doing? And especially the little ones have incredibly vibrant imaginations. They'll describe to me this whole world that they have created, this scenario that they're playing out, how this bush is a castle of some kind, and this stick is a magic wand, and all of these things. And when I engage with kids, either at the school or maybe in my own family, and if I play with them and engage in these fantasies, it's important that I maintain whatever world they've told me I'm inhabiting. So if we're playing together and they tell me that that bush is a castle, I had better refer to it as a castle. Because if I don't, if I say, oh, you're hiding in the bush, they will correct me. Say, no, it's a castle. It's my castle, and I'm doing this, and I'm this princess, and all of these things. And it's a lovely thing. It's a lovely thing that children do. But they have to maintain that. They have to maintain the, the strict language around these items. Because the bush is a bush, right? You look at the bush, it's clearly a bush. That stick is clearly a stick. It's not a magic wand. But to live in that fantasy, to continue to have that imagination and that exploration... You have to refer to them as we are treating them. We're treating this as a castle right now. We're treating this as a magic wand right now. Well, we face an interesting analogy to that in the Eucharist. If a child is playing and they point to something, like a mud pie, and say, this is chocolate cake. Well, they demand that those around them say, this is chocolate cake. That's how we remember it's chocolate cake. But we all know it's not chocolate cake. Just a child saying it's this thing doesn't make it that thing. Well, Jesus takes bread and wine, and he, very much like these children, says, this is my body, and this is my blood. And just like the children, to our sight, nothing changes. So when a kid says, this bush is a castle, unless it changes into a castle, it's still probably a bush. But the problem with Jesus is that he's God. And when he says something, especially something as serious as this is my body, in a context as serious as the Passover meal, we actually have to believe that something has changed. It doesn't change in our sight, but if Jesus says this is my body and this is my blood, we take him seriously. And we believe that that thing has in fact transformed, has become his body, and his blood. But because it retains the appearance of bread and the appearance of wine, we have to do the same thing that we do with children, which is to maintain our language, to maintain the way we talk about it. Otherwise, we are liable to start treating what is truly the body and blood of Christ. We're starting to treat it like bread and like wine. If it doesn't change before our eyes, it's hard for us to remember and to treat it as it truly is, as the body and blood of Christ.
So, Catholicism, knowing this, being deeply invested in our human nature and knowing how humans work, over many, many centuries, has developed a system of devotions to help us remind ourselves over and over again what a thing truly is. Just like a child enforcing language. No, you have to call this thing a castle. The Church, to preserve the truth of the Eucharist, the Eucharist is not a fantasy, to preserve the truth of the Eucharist, has all of these different devotions of the Eucharist that help us remind ourselves over and over again, this isn't just bread. This isn't just wine. So for the rest of the homily, I'm going to run us through some of those Catholic devotions, some of which we still do today, some of which we don't really do today, but I think it's important to think about, to remind ourselves, that's why it was there. That's the purpose that it served. And maybe we can find another way to serve that purpose. So the first category I might talk about is all of the ways in which we greet Jesus. So an older devotion that's sort of gone out of fashion for reasons very much related to parish safety that we'll talk about is greeting the Blessed Sacrament or making visits to the Blessed Sacrament. And this is particularly true in in dense cities with a heavy Catholic population where you might have churches, Catholic churches, every couple blocks. But there is the idea, and I've heard of this from parishioners who grew up in New York or Philadelphia, There is this idea that as you're walking down the street, if you pass a Catholic church, you don't just pass that church. You go inside that church, you make a brief visit to the Blessed Sacrament. Essentially, you say hello to Jesus, who is present in the host, preserved in the tabernacle. You go and you say hi to Jesus before you move on. It's this idea of recognizing that if the the bread has become the body of Christ, Christ is truly present in the world, then we would never want to pass Jesus by without giving him some recognition. If God is present in our churches, we can't just ignore him. We should acknowledge that he's present in our church before we move on to the next thing. Now, unfortunately, we live in a world today where we have to keep our parishes locked because there's not as much of a fear and trembling before the sacred And people are liable to come in and vandalize or steal from our parishes. So where all of these churches used to be just left open throughout the day, now we have to lock our doors. But canon law tells us we have to keep the church open at some point during every day so that people can pray here. And the way we've solved that problem of assumption is we have a door code. So a couple months ago, we started leaving these inner doors unlocked. So if you have the door code, you can come inside this church and visit whenever you want. For COVID, we can't use the Tabernacle Chapel. It's not ventilated. We can't use unventilated rooms still. But you can come into the church. You can visit with the Lord whenever you want to. Call the office, get the door code, make these visits. Or, at minimum, you can do what I do. Whenever I pass a Catholic church, I don't go in. I might be going somewhere and be on a timeline. I always make the sign of the cross. I always make the sign of the cross. For our church, for Sacred Heart, even for the Orthodox Church up on Sunset, they have valid Eucharist. They probably have a tabernacle. There's a good chance that the Lord is residing physically in that building. So I always make the sign of the cross when I pass that. Just to acknowledge, God is present. God is present there, and I don't want to ignore his presence. 
In the church, we greet the Lord with a genuflection. Now, for reasons that I'll probably cover later in the homily, our tabernacle is not up front like it is at Sacred Heart or many Catholic churches. We'll get there. But there's still the idea of genuflection. So if a tabernacle is up front, what people were trained to do was before you go into your pew, you genuflect. You go down on your right knee, you make the sign of the cross to acknowledge the presence of the Lord. Because if this is his house and he is truly physically present here, which he is, we don't want to walk into somebody's house without saying hi, right? Just blow past them and start, you know, taking stuff from their fridge. That's not what we do. We always greet the host. That was an intentional pun. We always greet the host. Eh? We always greet the person who is hosting us in the home. Right? But same thing is true of the church. We always greet the Lord who is present in our tabernacle. Little weirded assumption because you gotta like turn in weird angles. So what I do is, is at minimum I make the sign of the cross. Whenever I walk past the tabernacle chapel, just like driving past a church, I always make the sign of the cross to acknowledge the presence of God. He is truly present here in his body and blood. And I need to remind myself of that so that I don't just treat it like bread. Right? Treat the host like God because it truly is God. At least acknowledge it somehow, however it works for you. I should say, the reason we have those chapels is a good reason. There was a Roman document um, after the council, I can't date it exactly, but that talks about church architecture. And it talks about creating tabernacle chapels because Romans write church law and Romans think in Roman terms. In Rome, there are all these huge, big, beautiful churches with tons of tourists all the time. So they're like, oh, our people need to be able to pray with the Eucharist, and they can't because it's just so distracting to be in these churches. Let's create these side chapels so that devoted people who want to pray with the Eucharist can go and pray with the Eucharist while the tourists do the tourist things. Well, we started applying that to, like, neighborhood churches in the United States where it doesn't actually do much because our church doesn't have a bunch of tourists all the time. And I've tried to pray in that chapel when something's going on in the church, and it really doesn't help. Like, I'm still equally distracted. But it was a good intention to try to give people a prayer space. I'm not sure if it it had the fruits that everybody intended. It would be nice to have the tabernacle in the main church so that when you walk into the church, it's clear, like, there's Jesus, he's the host, this is what's going on. But that's many years down the line before we have that conversation. Okay, to continue the devotions. One other place you'll see genuflection is in the Mass. I genuflect three times. After the consecration of the host, after the consecration of the chalice, and then right before the reception of communion. And that's because those are the three times where I'm about to get most intimate with the Lord. I get most intimate with the Lord when I am holding the bread that becomes his body or when I'm holding the chalice that becomes his blood. Immediately after that moment, which is so holy and so special, I have to make a grand gesture with my body to acknowledge the fact that this is now God. And then, right before I take him into my body, I acknowledge it one more time. We don't genuflect for normal people. Like, I don't go around genuflecting somebody when I greet them. That's not something that I do. We reserve that, at least in the U.S., for the Lord. And so making those gestures is a way to just acknowledge one more time how incredibly special this thing is. And, because we're human, to remind ourselves that something special is happening. On that note, you'll notice during the Mass I also keep my fingers together after a certain point. So my hands are like this when I pray for the first part of the Mass. 
And then after I say the words of consecration, and that piece of bread becomes the body of Christ, I keep my fingers together when I pray like this. That's related to something that I would call crumb management. So the Lord gave us his presence in bread and wine, which is insane. Because bread and wine, I mean, you can spill wine, bread can break, it can get lost, it's powerless, and, and it has crumbs. So the church has had to deal with the fact that like, this is the presence of God, this is truly the body of Christ, and yet it's like shedding. There are crumbs everywhere. And so there are all of these different devotions and practices that have built up around the altar to make sure that we don't treat crumbs like crumbs, that we treat them essentially like flecks of gold coming off the most precious thing we've ever seen. So we have things like the corporal on the altar, which is a cloth that's always underneath the Eucharist, just in case a crumb were to fall. It would at least fall in the corporal, and then the corporal, when we clean it, ideally, we first shake it out over a sacrarium, a special sink that goes directly into the ground so that any crumbs of the Eucharist aren't put through the washing machine, for example. We have a corporal, uh, we have a patent to hold the bread so that the bread isn't just on a cloth, that any crumbs would fall onto this piece of metal that then we wipe off into the chalice. You'll see me purify the vessels uh, after we've received communion to make sure that no crumb is left on the patent or in the ciborium. I'll run water through the chalice to make sure that there's no remnant of the blood of Christ. We want to make sure that all of the Eucharist is consumed, that we don't just leave bits and pieces of Jesus hanging out in the, sac- the, um, <laughs> the sacristy unacknowledged and unrecognized. We always very careful with those crumbs. So when I touch the bread, I might get crumbs on my fingers. And so once I've said the, the words of consecration, that's the body of Christ. And so I trap those crumbs between my fingers, and I don't release my fingers unless they are over a piece of metal, so that the crumbs would fall into the, in, onto the patent or into the ciborium. And then I don't release my fingers until I've run water over them to make sure all the crumbs are off. Now, this used to be required in the Mass. Now it's not. The Church basically said we got really, really fussy, and people focused far too much on these fussy things rather than on the presence of Christ, right? They were just very rule followers, and they weren't like, oh, this is Jesus. But I've retained it for myself as a priest as a devotion because I'm human and it's so easy for me to think this is just bread. I celebrate three Masses on Sunday. By my third Mass, it's really hard for me to be prayerful. But keeping my fingers together, I might be praying, I might lose myself, and then I might look at those and be like, oh right, I've done something special today. There is something important that has happened here on this altar. The final category that I'd like to bring up is exposition. So in the Roman documents, the church sees very little difference between exposition and adoration. Sitting with the tabernacle is still sitting with the presence of Jesus. And so even on Holy Thursday, where we have this procession and we sit with Jesus in the garden, the church tells us to keep the Eucharist in a tabernacle or in a vessel, to not expose it. Because, again, it's the presence of Christ, and we're supposed to acknowledge that. So, in the Church's mind, there's nothing particularly special about exposition. And yet, in the United States, and possibly around the world, I'm not sure, there's been this practice of really emphasizing exposition, more than just praying with the tabernacle, but praying with the host in a, in a monstrance, where you can actually see the host. And I think the importance of that has developed because of something, well... In general, but I'll tell it through a story about a guy named Curtis Martin. 
Curtis Martin started Focus, which is this big um, campus ministry organization, a bunch of missionaries. They graduate college. They do mission on college campuses for a while. He was a Catholic, fell away from the church, got involved with evangelical uh, Protestantism, and then came back to the church. And what brought him back to the church is somebody made him go to exposition. In exposition, you see the host in a monstrance, and he was surrounded by people who were worshiping that host. They were singing songs, they were bowing down, they were genuflecting, they were lying prostrate. They were clearly worshiping that host as though it was God. And Curtis Martin was faced with the choice. He said, either I had to believe that this was the worst form of idolatry I had ever experienced, that all of these people were truly worshiping a piece of bread, which is gross and horrible and disgusting and horrifying, or that piece of bread was actually God, that that was truly Jesus Christ present. And he had to choose, are these the worst idolaters in the world, all Catholics everywhere, or is there something to the Eucharist? By attending exposition, we are forced to make that choice ourselves. You have to look at that thing that looks like a piece of bread, and you have to decide, is this Jesus? Is this God actually truly present in the world? Has God decided to be physically present here with me in the host? It's an important decision to make. We have exposition every Wednesday, um, all day, from 8 a.m. through the night until Thursday at 7 a.m., where we do benediction. I encourage everybody to attend exposition regularly, once a month, once a week, because it's important to remind ourselves God is present. He's in the host. It's not just bread. Now today, Corpus Christi, after the 10 a.m. Mass, We're going to take that exposition and we're going to step it up one more level. We're going to do a Eucharistic procession. This year only around the block, maybe next year a little further. We're going to take the host in the monstrance and we are going to parade it around our parish. Now, I did this in Boston at Eucharistic Congress once. It was incredible because we were going through the restaurant district on a Friday night or Saturday night when everybody was eating. And all these people were poking their heads out of the restaurants. They were poking their heads out of the second-floor apartments because there were hundreds of Catholics singing, giving praise to God, and then there was this priest holding this thing, and there was incense and a cross. They were like, what is going on? When we parade the host around, we force the world to make the decision. Is this bread or is this God? Is this idolatry or is this worship? They have to confront the fact that Jesus wants to be physically present in the world. He wants to be present among his people. And he has, in fact, done so in the Eucharist. The world should have to be confronted with that fact so that people will maybe finally accept that God loves them, God wants to be with them. Now, none of this is to enforce traditional devotions or to be fussy or anything like that. The point is to say... What's going to happen today on the altar, at the end of that miraculous consecration, is still going to look like bread, and it's still going to look like wine. And as human beings, we need constant reminders that it's not. We need to constantly remind ourselves that there is something more important there, that it's not just bread. I don't care what your practices are, I just care that you have practices, that you have some way to remind yourself that what's on the altar is special. 
that what's on the altar is more than bread, that it is the true presence of Christ. How you bring yourself up to communion, how you bow, how you hold your hands, how you treat the host, all of these are going to be improved by Eucharistic devotion, that constant reminder that what's going on is special, that somehow this is Jesus and not just bread. As long as we have those devotions, we have those practices, we have those reminders, we are not going to be tempted to treat the Eucharist as simply bread and wine. We are going to be infused with the love of God and the grace of Christ. Those devotions and those practices will help us grow in love for the Eucharist, grow in appreciation for the fact that it's God's presence among us. It's an idea that I hope we never lose, that we always strengthen. God wants to be with us, and he is with us physically, truly, body, blood, soul, and divinity in the Eucharist.